Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Steve Lansania, and I'm joined by Megan Pospisil, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Sanyan Musa, epidemiologist at the Institute for Public Health in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Sanyan, welcome onto the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Just to start us off, could you talk a little bit about the background to your career and what your current role entails now? In our introduction, one of our colleagues at the College of Public Health likened you to Dr. Fauci. So in brief, uh, I'm a medical doctor. I started my career as a general practitioner. I worked as a, three years as a general practitioner. And then after I started to work in a public health institute of the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina. First, I had a residency in epidemiology three years. Then after I was specialist, so epidemiologist. In parallel, I, was, um, I completed a master and PhD in epidemiology. And one of my, uh, during my PhD, I spent one semester in the University of Iowa. So in, uh, I completed PhD in 2016. Then after I start, I'm also now an associate professor in epidemiology in an institute. I, uh, now I'm the head of the Department of Epidemiology. So in 10 years, everything's happened. So from the, as I said, as a, from the, as a beginner to now the head of the department, and uh, especially now in the, this crisis response to COVID-19, I'm also a member of the uh, the federal uh, crisis headquarter. With that role that you're talking about handling the COVID-19 crisis, what exactly are you involved in in the countries? What are you directing? How are you influencing how the general public is responding to the COVID-19 crisis? What does that kind of look like on a day-to-day operations level? Bosnia-Herzegovina in general is really complex uh, state. So we are organized in two entities and we have also state level. So I work in the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and on the federal level, we have a crisis headquarters, but we also have crisis headquarters on the district level. Also, I would like to refer to your previous question just a bit. When you said uh, Anthony Fauci, I, I want to say that he's uh, my uh, great inspiration, I would say. I, his podcast, his interviews, I'm regularly following. Uh, but also I'd like to mention also one of the hero, public health heroes that I, that I really like. It's a Paul Offit, because during my career, I was also the head of the immunization department. And uh, in vaccinology, he's number one. I, I like his books, his interviews. Also, I like also Laurie Garrett, epidemiologist. She wrote really nice books, especially uh, one book is about pandemic problem in issues. And now it's really actual. And also one, another hero, uh, I think it would be interesting for your uh, listeners. In my uh, teaching sessions, I'm using uh, uh, Leon Gordy's book, Epidemiology. He's a classic, and I think that you are also using that in, in EP1. So, uh, so these are my, I, w- I would say, heroes in uh, public health. Now back to this question, uh, how we respond. First cases uh, we had in uh, March, but during the, that whole February, we were preparing for the expecting first cases. And I remember uh, it was somewhere in the mid of February, the Chinese embassy organized for these public health professionals from this whole region, a link with the, our colleagues from China. 
And I think after that meeting, you know, that's the first time when you really realize the dimension of catastrophe, you know, which is approaching, you know. So it's always it's different when you read about it and you read some data, but when you speak with your colleagues and when they show you data and they told you their experience, then it's different, you know. I remember after that meeting, we were really like, oh, this is really, really big stuff. So then we started to organize. On the beginning, it was really difficult, you know, with the basic stuff like PPE, for example, you know, you have to, because you have some reserves in your, in your, in your stock of PPE, but you don't have, you know, like millions of it, you know. So that was on the beginning, the issue. So I said, first cases we had on the beginning of in March. So it was the, the families who are coming back from Italy and Italy was a hot spot at that time. Uh, so we had one, two family, and then we have one big meeting. And uh, on that meeting was one guy who was positive. And then we have that huge clusters, you know, that were just approaching one, two, three, four, five, second, third generation of new cases. And then we decided it, it was like, I think, 18 or 20th March to, to do uh, so-called, now it's, start, we start to use these words, so frequently lockdown. So... We closed bars, schools, all this stuff. So we completely closed society because, you know, it started to spread like like a fire. You know, it, it couldn't be controlled. So also what was what had really big impact of me in that first part of the response. So that meeting with the colleague from China, and also the the paper that I read. It was uh, Imperial College uh, UK. The modeling that they were doing. They said that, for example, just a couple of weeks, you know, it will increase the capacity. It will, it will overburden your health system, you know. So I remember that also that paper was, was really influential, that big analysis. But I'm, it was circulating everywhere, but I'm not sure that it's, it, it was published, you know. So, but it was really interesting. So that also affect how uh, on our response. So we decided to, to lock down for a couple of weeks. And then we opened, it was maybe beginning of May that we start gradually to open the, but we started with, with pharma, you know, some small businesses and stuff like that. And uh, during the May, it was totally open. So in six months, it was June, we were opened totally. And uh, of course, immediately when you are open, you start to see new cases who are, who are coming up. During the summer, the situation was pretty okay but we had some outbreaks localized and uh, finally it was beginning of october that we start to increase that we start to increase number of cases and the peak we had in the middle mid of november uh, i remember it was 272 uh, cases per 100000 that was the the highest peak that we had in one week and that after that mid november we start to see the decreasing of cases and now we are i would say but not so bad. We had uh, 58 cases per 100,000 in one week. So it's like during the, that summer months that we had uh, uh, cases. It's going good. But I would say that now we are expecting this new variant of virus. I see in the region, they started to, to find this new variant. And I, I'm sure that, me, that, that you know, the days are really close and we will also find it here. So... It's still challenging. This winter is really challenging, I would say. Uh, so we will see how it goes further. 
When you're talking about the new variants coming up, because I know that's a question that's on many people's minds, why is it so important for folks to have a really a global mindset when we're combating these issues of public health, especially when it comes to COVID-19? You know, we're seeing new variants come up in multiple states here in the United States. We see um, things happening right in Bosnia and Herzegovina and other countries. How does this need to be a coordinated global response? Why is it so important to emphasize when many folks think country-specific at times? That can kind of be their perspective. I think this pandemic shows you very well how it's a global thing, you know. So you had in December of 2019, you had cases in China. In February, you had cases in Italy. In March, in Bosnia and everywhere in the world, you know. So uh, for me, I was an advocate for immunization. And I remember when I uh, speak with parents and uh, you have to convince them, for example, to vaccinate their children against some disease that maybe decades, they were never, they didn't registered in our country. For example, diphtheria. You always say to them, look, there is in the globe, there is some points in the world when there is still that virus or bacteria and it can be also transmitted here, you know, and not, you see how it's going now, you know, especially in this globalized world, you know, germs are just with human, they're traveling. It was happening also in the past, of course, you know, so cholera, for example, when you go back and you see, you know, with, with, with the army, how it's traveling around the world. But now in this globalized world, you should expect it much, much sooner. In this last couple of years, we were preparing for this this situation, you know, it's, you, you, you are never well prepared, I would say, you know, no matter how much you are doing, especially Ebola in 2015, 14, 15, you know, we start to, to see uh, importance to react faster. For example, CEPI, it's abbreviation Center for Epidemiology Preparedness Innovation, something like that. It, it means that they, it was created, you know, as a mechanism to help the world to faster response. Unfortunately, it's, it's going slowly. For example, with vaccines, it's, it shows that we are not so well prepared as, uh, as we would like to be. How would you say educating the citizens of Bosnia-Herzegovina has gone? Do most people take it very seriously or have you had any pushback? So that risk communi- communication is really important part of your response to this pandemic. When we uh, organized our crisis headquarters in the first part of the in March, in April, in May, we had daily press conference. And uh, after we, every week and now every two weeks, we have press conference. So it's always important, you know, to communicate, to explain your decisions, to explain situation and, and, and decisions with the population. It's uh, because I was, for years, I was doing with vaccines and I know how it's, how it's really important to establish the trust between community and uh, public health officers and public health institutions. So especially in this crisis, it's important that people understand your actions and the, the measures that you are implementing. And also what is strange, it's, uh, you know, you, you have to convince people and you, you have to first to convince yourself by reading data and reading, you know, tons of papers and articles. I will give you just one example. So for example, with masks, universal masking you know so at the beginning we were saying only if you have symptoms then you wear masks or if, if you are treating someone who has who had symptoms then wear masks but then we change our our message you know and we said you should all wear masks and we have to, to clarify and they said ah now you change your opinion you know yeah we change your opinion because we collected enough data to change our opinion 
On the beginning, I remember I was watching in the Anthony Fauci interviews on, the, on JAMA in, in January, in the beginning of February, and we were thinking, is there is asymptomatic transmission of the disease? So we were not so sure. We have some just anecdotal stories that yes, it's possible, you know, to be asymptomatic and to transmit. But now we know between 30 and 50% of people are asymptomatic and capable to transmit disease. So universal masking is key in your response, you know. Of course, there is always some people who are complaining about it. They think that they, you discomfort uh, their life because they have to wear masks, you know. So, But then you have to repeat, repeat your message and you have to always to explain uh, why you are doing something and why you are recommending something. So risk communication is a really important part. Uh, for example, I had maybe sometimes per day, you know, a couple of interviews, you know, and they always wanted you to like, you are celebrities. I now see how the celebrities, when you always have to be in the media, you know, that it's really heavy burden, you know, on your back, because also you are not that, you, you, we were trained to, re, to communicate, but not in such amount, you know, <laughs> you always have to be there. And so it's, uh, it's also something new for us, but yeah, you have to learn step by step and to be ready to respond. That's, that's really important. I would argue also it's a higher burden, hopefully, than the celebrity status, too, as you're you're caring for a nation. You're caring for all these folks in your community who you want to see succeed and live healthy lives. I think one of the big things that stuck out to me when we were going through our introductory courses in, in epidemiology and global health mm-hmm. was the notion of, of measles immune theory and the idea that if you had contracted measles potentially later on, you could have complications where you would have limited immune response, you know, just by contracting this virus and having something unknown like that, that is just starting to really kind of make waves. Now I reflect on that with COVID and it's the idea that a lot of folks think, you know, this will be nothing. We won't have any long-term consequences. And we're seeing that now for a lot of folks who, whether, you know, through their own actions or through by accident, they've caught COVID and there will be those long-term implications of catching the disease that we just don't know yet. You know, we're so early on into it. Do you think that that communicating that aspect, when we're coming with these public health education topics, do you think communicating how much we really still don't know about COVID-19 or at least the long-term effects of it would be helpful for folks? Is it helpful to take that approach of you really should be cautious because we don't know the full scope of what we're dealing with here? That's really important. It's a really good question, you know, but you always have to, to declare what you know, what you don't know. You know, you cannot speculate. The first question in, in, a, in a risk communication, you never speculate, you know. You just say what you know. If you something you don't know, you have to say that I don't know. We still don't have enough data to clarify that. For example, I will give you just another, your examples are really good, you know. That, that is also one aspect when you have to explain people so 80% of people will have a really mild form of disease, you know. Among these 80%, you know, maybe 50, 40% will not have at all symptoms, you know. But then you are pushing them to wear masks, you know, to stay uh, home and stuff like that. So you have to clarify why is that, you know. So uh, even if you are not hardly affected by disease, you, you can still transmit disease and that chain of transmission can finish with someone who will have severe form of disease, you know. So... You have to, to communicate that. During this day, something that I was really thinking about and preparing uh, my, my strategy, how to respond, uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. So people now are saying, uh, when they finish the third phase of uh, clinical phase, 
they didn't have enough uh, older adults, uh, older person in, in the study group. So now it's question, you know, should you recommend that for people over 60, even they were not enough number in the, in the third uh, phase of uh, clinical trial. So uh, I will give you just some of my thoughts and my, my arguments. So you have first to, to read the, 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 the second phase when there was safety and immunological response. And you see that there is no such a big difference among the age groups, but definitely in the third phase, there were not enough the senior citizens who were part of the study group. There is many reasons because of that, because the, during the, that third phase, try also to manipulate with the dosage. You know, they start maybe one, just one dose, but it didn't work. Then you start with half dose. They start to manipulate with that. And finally, they decided you need two doses, but then you're, you shrink your group, you know. So now you don't have 40,000 and much of people who are older. Then uh, you just have 20, 25,000, I think they had in total. Uh, and then you have to now to think what to say to check your data, you know. So, of course, the most vulnerable groups are the older citizens. And then you don't have enough data now to, to, to explain that. And now it's debate, you know. So someone said, like, UK said, okay, we start to give that to first group is older than 80. They are doing, you know, some Germany, they said, oh, maybe we shouldn't go above 60, you know. So it's, uh, it's always like that, you know. It's always you need data. My institution and public health is always is driven by data. You know? So, but sometimes you have to do your best on the data that you have, you know. So, and you know, sometimes to take risk, but reasonable risk when you when you are making your decisions. Moving a little bit away from the COVID nineteen topic, um, what would you say are other big public health challenges that you face in Bosnia and Herzegovina? Yeah, uh, as you see during our uh, discussion that now it's uh, everything is COVID-19, you know, all our full capacity, we are totally devoted now to COVID-19. Also, I've said my main scope of, uh, I'm mostly focused on, on the communicable diseases. So in my career, with, I was really dealing a lot with the vaccine hesitancy. I did uh, several studies trying to, to answer, you know, why parents are hesitant to vaccination. That's uh, also, you know, some vaccine preventable disease. For example, in Bosnia, we are still um, endemic for TB, tuberculosis, for example. So this kind of uh, is is also, so my main focus is infectious disease. And I would say in public health challenges, the biggest challenge I would say is, you know, you have to build your capacity, you know, Workforce is also important and challenge, you know. So you have to have trained, skilled workforce. You have to have, you know, strong institution who are capable to dealing with the challenges. And now as a head of department, it's something that I'm dealing also with that management stuff, you know, how to organize the, 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 the department, how to find people to in labs, you know. So it's a... That's also part of that building capacity in, in public health. That that is also, I would say, issue in this uh, LMIC, you know, low and middle income countries. When you're talking about building capacity for public health professionals, is there some advice that you give to early career professionals who are looking into the fields of public health and epidemiology? Are are folks in these lower uh, income countries that you're talking about not? interested in public health or are they just not aware of the opportunities presented to them by public health? 
there is a difference between uh, education system in Bosnia, for example, in, in US. So here, if you want to be epidemiologist, you have to be medical doctor. You know? So we are we are recruiting the epidemiologists from the medical uh, graduated in, uh, in medicine. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. Uh, for example, it's not uh, really popular to say, you know, but uh, most medical doctors would like to be, you know, uh, surgeons, uh, I don't know, internal medicine specialist, you know, and public health is not really so much interesting. That also affecting, you know, the pool from where you are recruiting the candidates. So I, so my, I think that we should open this wider for other professions also. And, uh, you know, when you recruit staff, I, I would say the two important things are, are the candidate, candidate should have, you know. First, you have to be ready to learn, you know, continuously to learn, you know. I, I remember once I asked one of my my mentors something in statistics, you know, and I said, I asked questions, so and I said, where are the books that I can find the answer? And he told me, you have to, to critically review the papers, you know, critically reading of papers. So that's important, you know, you always have to read, 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 read. Um, so you have to be ready to learn, continuously to learn, to increase your capacities. And what I see it's really important in public health is teamwork. Absolutely. If you have, if you are part of good team, then your life is much easier, you know, and it's, but to establish good team, that is, it is also one critical aspect I, I have. Even you are surrounded with people who are devoted to their professions, you know, who are ready, you know, to work all day, all night, you know, so uh, uh, when you're continuously driven, you know, to do something, you know, then then it's much easier when you when you work in that kind of group. And uh, I think that's the quality that, that people uh, should have. And uh, I think that good path, you know, when you are building your own path, that's a good uh, recipe. Then you will never be lost, you know, if you are ready to work, you know, to continuously to go further, to, to push your limits more and more. And if you are lucky that you are surrounded with people who can inspire you, who are ready to, to show the same uh, dedication to a job, that, that's, really, that's really important. So our last question for you this morning is just, what is one thing that you thought you knew but were later wrong about? For example, this with the masks, you know. So we are quite sure, you know, we are making some posters and stuff. You know, I always like to give, a, to give a examples, you know. So but in general, that's the science, you know. Science is not a dogma. It's not, uh, you know, something that uh, you have to believe or not to believe. You know, you have to collect data. And to have good, high-quality public health data, that's really important, you know. And it's, you know, it's a long way when you design something, when you're in study, when you then go to collect data, to analyze data, to publish data, that, and then you, you know, to people order to read. It's a long, long, long way. But you have to be ready to work on it. You have to be, uh, uh, you know, ready for that long journey, and uh, it's uh, it's always like that. For example, I'll just give you one interesting hint, something for reading. Just a couple of months before the pandemic start, uh, I was reading book "Vaccine Rates" by by uh, Meredith uh, Wadman, and it's uh, about story uh, how uh, rubella vaccine was uh, developed. The story with uh, Stanley Plotkin, for example, he also another one, my, my personal hero. I had the chance to meet him uh, during one conference uh, and I made uh, one and a half hour interview with him. And you can read that interview in uh, ResearchGate. 
and to find my profile and you can find that interview and to see, for example, how long journey is to, to develop vaccines. He was explaining his career and, uh, you know, all that rubella story and polyomyelitis story. So it was, it was really interesting. But you see now, you know, it took him years and years to develop rubella vaccines because it's a live attenuated vaccine. And then you have to, you know, to go through the cell lines to attenuate it. You know, it takes time, time, time. time. Look now, in the nine months, you have vaccine, you know. So for a, for a COVID, for example, you know. But it's also important to say, because now I'm, uh, quite often I'm responding, is it developed too fast, you know? On that, is that new, new platforms are something, you know, that should, we should be scared? So then you said, you know, you know it, it's a new, but it's not, uh, it was not unknown, you know? We were working on it for a couple of years before, you know? So you have to explain. I started my story with uh, Stanley Plotkin. Now I finished with uh, mRNA vaccines. That, that's my main message. So it's, uh, you know, with science, you know, you have to be ready that maybe, you know, something that you believe was not, uh, that, that you find is not as you started, you know, in the beginning. We can see that that vaccine race even now for, for, for a COVID. I, I remember in a, in Bosnia, unfortunately, we still didn't start it with vaccination. We are part of this uh, COVAX mechanism, and we are expecting first doses now in the mid of February. Uh, COVAX was uh, helping to develop, uh, working on the 10 different vaccines. So AstraZeneca, for example, is one which is, uh, we are expecting now. So it's uh, amazing, uh, challenging now in the public health. So. Sorry, I was just changing subject several times in my response. What was your response? <laughs> what was your question? <laughs> no, that, I think that's fantastic to talk about the transformation of expectations really is, is, is critical. And we've talked a lot about that today, whether it's in the public health education, whether it's in the vaccination standpoints and, and how that's evolved. I think back to when this all started, you know, we were, I, on my end, I was thinking the fastest va vaccine that was developed, I think was four years, right? I think it was mumps off the top of my head. And I remember, I remember quoting that to myself and thinking, look, this is going to be a long haul. And seeing this vaccine come out so quickly, I, I similarly, I had the question of, you know, this came out very quick. How efficacious is this? It's going to be a safe situation. And, just thinking about the trials, the magnitude of what's going on right now, we have such a different world that is so interconnected at this point. And we've been working on this for a long time behind the scenes to be ready for this moment. And while it has all caught us off guard, we are on a very good trajectory. We're keeping with a positive attitude here. We're on a very good trajectory in terms of vaccination development and many candidates coming out. So it is incredibly exciting to be part of this history and see the development of these opportunities and then also having that ability to recognize that science changes over time. I think that's a very important public health concept and so a very important public concept too as well as we've talked about today. So I do want to be respectful of your time and, and thank you very much for coming on, Sonia. It was incredibly inspiring to listen to you. You're doing such good work for Bosnia and Herzegovina. And we really wish you the best of success in the coming months dealing with the pandemic. Thank you so much. Thank you for your invitation and thank you for having me in your program and uh, good luck students with their career in the, in the future.
That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Sandy and Musa for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted and written by Steve Lansagne and Megan Pospisil. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Lansagne. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.